Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. It's great to be here with you at Ivy Central tonight. Uh, back in a former life, I actually lived in Didsbury. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out things have changed a great deal since we moved here as, as newlyweds. Uh, we had our first child here, our daughter, at Withington Hospital, which Robert was saying has just been demolished or something like that. So the maternity ward, I can't go back and take that trip down memory lane. So things have changed. It was a good day yesterday in Manchester because Man United won. That was fantastic. They actually converted a penalty for the only goal of the game. And it was even better because City lost. So that, that made me happy. I'm one of these guys who, when I lived in Manchester, I used to be a Manchester City supporter. And uh, I would go to Main Road when City were dire and watch them play mediocre football. If I would go to Old Trafford, I would cheer for the other team. Uh, But I moved to the the United States uh, in 1995, and one day I I went to bed, a Man City supporter, and the next day I woke up a Man United supporter. So it was a bit like Eric Metaxas, who said he went to bed one night an atheist and woke up the next day a believer in Jesus. So something powerful happened. While I was asleep, there was a, a transformation. So I've been involved, as Tim said, in Canada, uh, in evangelism, in church planting the past seven or eight years, and just recently I've transitioned to give leadership to Message Canada, which is a brand new baby uh, expression of message, which has gone global from a very Manchester-centric ministry taking the good news of Jesus amongst the hardest to reach young people in the toughest communities. And then it spread to places like South Africa, where it's going bonkers, Germany and the Netherlands, and then post-Christian Canada. So I'd simply ask before we dive into tonight's message as part of your series, it's all about Jesus, that you would stand with us in prayer in this new day in Canada. If you want to register for regular prayer updates. It's simply info at messagecanada.org. And uh, we've got Russian hackers that will get your social security number, your bank (laughs) details, and transfer funds to a Swiss bank account. Not really. Uh, But we want to build a prayer support because even in the early days, we've been encountering spiritual warfare, and it is early days. We have one Eden team that has moved into the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is misnamed uh, the poorest postal code in all of Canada. It's actually the seventh poorest postal code in all of Canada. And we're opening a cafe next month as a social enterprise hub just across from Hastings in Maine, which is a shocking scene of human carnage where maybe 15, 20 years ago, uh, people would be in mental hospitals and you can go there and see people walk in the streets like the living dead, broken, homeless, addicted, trafficked. And we want to be a beacon of hope there. We've got a team leader called Fari, who is a Rena- an Iranian immigrant who moved from Iran to Denmark and then to Canada 
Why go a straight line, go via Denmark? And along the way, got hijacked by Jesus. So he is Muslim no more. Jesus devoted, Jesus lover. He's a wild, exuberant extrovert that loves people. And he and I were wandering the streets of Vancouver a couple of weeks ago, and his eyes light up as he recognizes some of the homeless people. He's like, I love you, man. And they recognize him, and we pray for people. And uh, he's doing a great thing. We're opening a cafe. We're looking for a cafe manager. We're looking to employ three Union Gospel Mission rehab graduates. So this is just infancy work. The other thing I'm after are evangelists. In Canada, evangelists are the endangered and threatened species. You'll know from the study of Ephesians that Jesus gave five leadership gifts to the church, but Canada has ignored that startling, shocking, oddball gift the recruiting engine of the church, the evangelist, and we want to see a redemptive reversal. When I was in South Africa in 2010, a wealthy friend, and maybe you could become a wealthy friend, uh, paid for me to go on safari after this evangelism congress, and I was driving. I wasn't driving. I wasn't allowed to drive, but I was riding shotgun with our driver, whose name was Yup. I said, what's your name? Yup. No, I asked you, what's your name? Yup. And I turned out he wasn't saying yes in a South African way. That was actually his name was Yup. And Yup slammed on the brakes one of the times we were driving through Gruga National Park because he saw wild dogs. And he's getting excited about wild dog. I just thought it was a particularly ugly hyena with a large cranium, but it was a wild dog. And I said, why are you excited? He goes, there's only 500 of them on the planet. Well, a Wikipedia that is wrong, there's like 6,000 of them, but they're still an endangered and threatened species. And in Canada's gospel ecosystem, the endangered and threatened species is the evangelist. So you could stand with me in prayer that we would see a new day of men and women anointed by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit to make much of Jesus, to announce him, to gossip the gospel and proclaim the good news. So you're in a series, I'm reliably informed, called It's All About Jesus. And that's the whole point of life on planet Earth. And if you're a believer, a child of God, you've been awakened to the glorious truth that actually life isn't about you. Remember Rick Warren, the fat pastor from California with the Hawaiian shirt line? And the first sentence of the purpose-driven life is worth the price of admission. It's not all about you. Wow, that's, I thought life was all about me, myself, and I. No, it's not all about you. And when we read the Gospels and dive into the Bible, we discover the whole adventure and misadventure on planet Earth is about the Lord Jesus. And tonight, I want to speak about the greatness and supremacy of Jesus and ask you a question. How big and clear and pure is your picture of Jesus? How clear and true and pure is your vision of Jesus? Is your vision of Jesus cloudy? Or are you captivated by the beauty, truth, grace, power, majesty, authority, and tenderness of Jesus? The movie Amazing Grace uh, traces the story of one of England's evangelical heroes, William Wilberforce, who campaigned across decades to see the abolition of slavery. And there's a moving scene when he, he visits his aging mentor, 
A man who's, who's nearly blind, played by the late great Albert Finney. John Newton, who was himself a human trafficker, hijacked by Jesus and transformed by the grace of God. And he says something memorable in that movie. He says, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. So his eyesight was fading, but his spiritual vision was crystal clear. He's a sinner and Jesus is a great savior. I live a little bit east of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and a church near us in the city next to us decided they would plant a campus in our neighborhood. And I know Ivy's into uh, multi-site and campuses because we want to multiply to spread the gospel like a virus. And they put out sandwich boards in our neighborhood and they made the claim, making Jesus bigger. So I drove by one day as a grumpy Scotsman with a Sharpie pen and I wrote, you can't make them any bigger, you nincompoop. No, I didn't do that. But that was what I thought about doing because you can't make Jesus bigger. He's unsurpassed in his greatness. For the past almost eight years, I've been involved with the network assessing, coaching, training, and supporting church planters. And as part of that process, and one of our best practices is to put planters through an assessment center to see if they've got the right stuff to be the point leaders in a brand new gospel enterprise. And it's three days, it's very intense. It's kind of freaky and intimidating if you're the planter couple. You're kind of like walking around in your underwear or walking naked emotionally and spiritually for three days, but you keep your clothes on. And there's interviews, there's various exercises, we evaluate their interactions, and there's, you know, with diagnostics that we use. And one of the things we want to see, can you actually preach? And so one of the planters during his uh, vision cast and sermon exercise started handing out red baseball caps that looked like Trump baseball caps. So that got my attention. And on the caps it said, making Jesus great again. So he did his 10 minute talk, his 15 minute talk. And then I was like the Simon Cowell of the assessment team. I said, hey buddy, just want to tell you something. You're supposed to ask a question, but I made a statement. You can't make Jesus great again. He already is great. And we need to settle on that. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That ancient scary prophet who straddles the old and new covenants, and Jesus said, there's no one greater born of women than John the baptizer says, Jesus must increase. I'm going to fade into the shadows. Why? He had a clear handle on who his half-cousin was and is. It's John who sees Jesus in the distance and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's John who recognizes Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He says, I baptize with water, but someone mightier than me. I'm not even worthy enough to untie their Reeboks is coming. And I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
But even John, his crystal clear vision of Jesus began to fade. He got wobbly in prison. And he gets a deputation from his disciples to ask Jesus a burning question. Are you the coming one? Or should we expect someone else? So it's possible to start out with a crystal clear vision of the greatness, power, supremacy of Jesus. And then maybe become wobbly and need our vision recalibrated by the Spirit of God. When I was a little guy, I was scared of the dark. And I spent bits of my boyhood in the United States of America. God bless America and no place else. And my dad worked for IBM, which I thought stood for I've Been Moved, but it actually stood for International Business Machines. And in one of these stops of several months in the United States of America, I went into the Bible bookstore and discovered a glow-in-the-dark plastic Jesus who looked remarkably like Qui-Gon Jinn as played by <laughs> Liam Neeson and it had words underneath with the Qui-Gon Jinn pose of these are not the droids you're looking for but on the base of it it said he cares for you and I thought I'm taking that home because when the orcs and the Urukai come out at night when I turn the light out they're not there under my bed when I inspect but when I turn the light out, surely they will manifest themselves. I'll have glow-in-the-dark Jesus like a lightsaber. And that gave a little scared pre-adolescent boy comfort. Now, is Jesus concerned that a 10, 11-year-old Scottish boy is scared of the dark? You bet. Is he scared with your burdens? The alarming fraying of your financial resources, crumbling relationships in your family? Is he concerned about your dreams, your faded hopes, your brokenness, your phobias? Absolutely. Scripture says, cast all your care on him because he cares for you. But he's bigger than that. He's more than our burden bearer. He's more than my glow-in-the-dark Jesus who scares the boogeyman back into the abyss. He's the Lord of history, and there's no one greater than Jesus. When I was a Bible college student, I did a four-year sentence at Theological Cemetery. My wife did a three-year sentence. She got out on parole for good behavior. <laughs> During one summer, we took charge of a church for about four months. And this was, uh, had been a mission hall that had been assimilated by the Borg, or no, actually assimilated by the denomination we were a part of. And it had strange works of art dotted around this building. So there was a fellow who, who looked as if he had terminal constipation in a suit of armor, and he's talking to someone, a rabbi, and underneath it says, the rich young ruler meeteth Jesus. So that way you knew what it was supposed to be because it looked nothing like the biblical scene. And at the back of the hall, there was a picture of Jesus who'd obviously just stepped out the shower or maybe he'd had a day at the spa and his hair was shimmering and blonde in shoulder length. His beard was perfectly manicured. He had piercing baby blue eyes, white spotless terry towel and robe, and he was perched on a boulder and he'd scooped little children in his arms, Caucasian, 
white children, honky children into his arms. And children of color were naked sitting on the dirt. And at the bottom it said, Jesus, the hope of the world. Now, I got a deputation from some of the young people in the church and they said, Pastor, what are you going to do about that picture of Jesus? It's a racist picture of Jesus. They should call it Jesus, the great white hope. And I said, I actually agree with your theological deconstruction of that picture. But if I take it down, the old people will attack me. They'll gnash me to death with their dentures and I'll be a dead pastor disaster. So thanks for your complaints. Beat it, kids. We opened the the building up and we did outreach three nights a week. We had live music. We showed movies. We had incredible hamburgers and baked potatoes because if you want to lure unregenerate Scottish adolescents into a building, put starchy carbohydrates out and they'll stampede into the church building. The first night we opened, there was some hoodlums led by their ringleader, Barney. And Barney comes and he looks at the picture of Jesus and he takes it off the wall and he said, this is a crap picture of Jesus. And he chucked it on the floor and it smashed. And I said, hallelujah, the Lord answers the prayers of a coward. And I swept up the broken pieces. Now many of us have an inaccurate, flawed picture of Jesus. And we need to gaze at scripture and invite the Holy Spirit to take away the blurriness and the fuzziness of our vision. So I want to invite you with me in the few moments we have left to look at a particularly shocking picture of Jesus that elevates us out of the Jesus I can keep in my inside pocket or the Jesus I can domesticate. And we see a fierce, wild Jesus, who simply can't be domesticated, and it's on page 1241 of your stolen Gideon Bible, or (laughs) if you prefer, Revelation 19, and we'll read a few verses from verse 11, and it goes from scary to gory, like really the Bible is an R-rated book, as you'll shortly discover. Revelation 19, 11 John says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. Strangely, they're not baby blue. They're like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So therefore, wondering who this strange military leader is, this heavenly warrior, here's another clue. His name is the Word of God. So John 1, Revelation 19, is Jesus. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. 
Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on the flesh. So this is a shocking vision of Jesus. Here we discover in the face of supernatural evil, injustice, oppression, Jesus is actually unstoppable. Do you know that Jesus of Nazareth is unstoppable? Death couldn't stop him. The apostle Paul said Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Death could not contain Jesus. He was a really, 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 really dead Messiah. And the world said, Jesus of Nazareth, you're too bad to live. And God the Father looked from heaven and said, nah, son, you're too good to die. Or if you prefer, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And God the Father <coughs> reanimates the corpse of his dearly loved son, the Lord Jesus. And he's raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he lives forever by the power of an indestructible life. That's why Paul could say in Romans 1, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection. And here we discover not only that he's unstoppable, but he's wild, he's fierce. I often wonder, what would it be like to gaze into the face of Jesus and gaze into the eyes of Jesus and make eye contact with the eternal uncreated Son of God who became fully human? And my assumption is, is I look into his eyes and he gazes into my brokenness, my sin, my hidden places. I would encounter relentless tenderness. I would experience compassion and grace and mercy. And I'm quite sure I would. But this is a different picture. His eyes are like blazing fire. Here you can't look into his eyes. eyes of limitless purity eyes that burn with holy intensity and we don't see gentle Jesus meek and mild here we see a glorious heavenly king in triumph and victory who vaporizes evil by the word of his mouth now, we need to remind ourselves, Revelation is not a timetable or a chart of how things will wrap up. You'll get yourself into deep yogurt if you assume it's some kind of timeline and depend on maybe what church you were a part of in the past. Maybe some wizard would appear with charts and timetables and speak about with great certainty about the symbolism in Revelation and make bold geographical and chronological declarations. That's not the purpose of the book of Revelation. It's an unveiling of the beauty and power and greatness of Jesus. And the 
visions of Jesus are very disturbing. He's got blazing eyes in chapter 1. Here in chapter 19, he's got blazing eyes. He's a scary figure in chapter 1 and an even more fierce, intimidating, terrorizing, fear-inducing figure in chapter 19. And there's always a danger you and I can try and make Jesus in our own image rather than allowing him to mold us into his image and likeness. The aging rocker, David Essex, he's aging now, but back in the day, some of the women here would have probably got Twitter painted at the very thought of, oh, oh, David Essex. And he was interviewed on a chat show because he played Jesus in Godspell. And the chat show host, Russell Hardy, decades ago said to him, David Essex, you played Jesus in Godspell, who do you think he was? David Essex always spoke as if he was in a perpetual state of stoneness. And this was no exception because he said, he was not just a good man, man. He was just a good man. Well, that's intellectually dishonest. And I thought, obviously, you did a pile of research for your role as Jesus in Godspell. Not. But it's safe if we do that British nonsense of, well, he was a frightfully nice chap who was kind to women, children, gerbils, and rescued cats from trees. He's such a nice fellow. Three cheers for Jesus. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. I worked in IBM for a season and drove a forklift truck as a young man and you'd go in and move pallets around and, and some of the guys would move pallets around so they could smoke dope in the back of the warehouse. And so one of the, the doped up forklift truck drivers came towards me one time and, and I said to him, who do you think Jesus is? He says he's an intergalactic spaceman. <laughs> now was he Influenced by Eric von Daniken, Chariot of the Gods. Now, if you say he's an intergalactic spaceman, then you can handle Jesus. But here we discover he's the unstoppable Jesus that we, we cannot handle. Sir Elton John said Jesus was a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. Why? Well, he doesn't want Jesus to mess with his life his choices or his lifestyle. So let's make Jesus in our own image. But here, that prospect is blown away. It's a danger we could try and downsize Jesus to make him manageable or reinvent him like Deepak Chopra and the third Jesus or Philip Pullman with his book on the good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ. And you do a, an ahistorical revisionism to recast Jesus and reduce his power, his majesty, and his significance. But here, we're reminded in Revelation 19, Jesus' name is greater than every other name. Here he's called faithful and true. Here we discover he is a secret name and no one can crack the code. You go, what's the significance of that? Well, in that culture, there was an assumption if you knew someone's name, you would have power over them. But no one's got power over Jesus. So the idea that he has a secret name speaks there's something mysterious and elusive about Jesus, although he is fully knowable, but he's supreme. He's also called the Word of God. And he has a tattoo and a robe that declare the same thing. King of kings 
in Lord of Lords. It's tattooed on his thigh, which legitimizes the millennial fascination with ink on the skin. And it's embroidered on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When I was a teenager, I said to my dad, I'd love to get a couple of tattoos. He said, what would you have? I said, I have a tattoo here and a tattoo here. He said, but what would you have on them? I said, here, I would have the Scottish Psalter and the word Scotland forever. The nodded, even though he's not a Scottish nationalist. And then on this one, I said, I would have a bloody cross and the words, Jesus is Lord. My dad said, go ahead. He's a master of reverse psychology, so I never did it. But here Jesus has words on his robe and words on his thigh that declare his supremacy. He's king over every king, government, ruler, and system. And he's Lord of Lords. Jesus' name is greater than every other name. It's the supreme name. That's why in Acts 4.12, the apostles with great confidence, proper confidence in the power of the gospel could say there's no other name under heaven given among men, women, whereby we must be saved. Philippians 2 contains a hymn that the early church would have sung and they say at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and we lose sight of that at our peril. Here we discover Jesus is champion over evil. He's passionate about justice. He defeats evil. Injustice is vaporized by the word of his mouth. But in all of this, we're confronted by his sacrifice. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Did you notice that in Revelation 19.13? And this is not as some commentators suggest the blood of his enemies. Leon Morris says, in this book, John repeatedly makes the point that it is in his capacity as a lamb, as it had been slain, that Christ conquers. He overcame, not by shedding the blood of others, but by shedding his own. So in this shocking, startling, disturbing picture of Jesus, we are reminded of the blood that he shed on the cross. The warrior king is the lamb who established a cosmic victory over evil by his sacrifice and will establish a new heavens and a new earth. But we're reminded of the power of the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me pure within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There's an old hymn I love, and it needs explaining if you've not had much church background, but it says there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So here, even in this startling picture of Jesus, we're reminded of the power of his sacrifice, that there's forgiveness, freedom, and cleansing 
all because Jesus offered up his life, died the death that you and I deserve to die in our place for us and spilled his blood. You don't need to be paralyzed by guilt and shame and failure. You don't need to walk around feeling like you're a leper. You can be clean, declared clean, fully accepted because Jesus laid down his life for you. And so even in the midst of this rather bizarre R-rated snapshot from God's redemptive history, we're reminded of an invitation that you and I can run to Jesus and be transformed and cleansed and set free. He's the champion over evil, injustice, oppression, but personal evil, the sin that tyrannizes you. Jesus died not only to pay the penalty for our sins, but to break the power of sin, to shatter the power of guilt. And you and I can dance in the presence of God, enjoying the kiss of his acceptance, because Jesus willingly, as a full-on expression of the immeasurable love of God, laid down his life for you and me. And lastly, we discover Jesus is king of the cosmos. This picture is almost comical. One regard, it says he's got many crowns on his head. So he's galloping on a white horse across the cosmos with a whole cluster of crowns on his noggin. And it's a reminder that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And it raises the question this evening, what is your response to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Do you love him? Do you adore him? Are you all in for Jesus? Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Jesus' agenda is, is cosmic, the restoration of all things. We're reminded at the end of this passage again that his agenda is global. It says he will rule the nations. And he's got a heart for the nations. Jesus' agenda is local. He has a redemptive agenda for the greater Manchester area. Even the dysfunctional suburbs of Didsbury. Jesus' heart beats with passion and tenderness for Didsbury. But his agenda isn't just cosmic, global, geographically divine by a postal code. His agenda is personal. So when we talk about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and we pray that God's kingdom would advance, it's highly personal. That Jesus wants to king it over your life and my life. That he's the king of kings and lord of lords who doesn't want you and I to wander around as automatons. He wants you and I to surrender to his authority, surrender to his kingship. C.T. Studd, the legendary cricketer, and missionary pioneer said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice I make is too great for him. Well, what sacrifice does he want? He wants the sacrifice of your life, your talents, your gifts, your sin, your brokenness, your ambitions, your ruined relationships, the whole enchilada. Are you living under the kingship of Jesus? Is he truly your Lord, Master, leader and king so it's a weird picture of Jesus that I was drawn to in Revelation 19 and as I was mulling over 
Lord, what do you want me to speak on? I began my devotions yesterday. I'm in Revelation 19. I go, okay, you got my attention. But it's not just to give you an exotic trip into the book of Revelation and some nuanced Christology. There's an invitation here for you and for me not to live my life my way because it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. But to say, King Jesus, king it over me. King it over my life, my career, my finances, my sexuality, my relationships, my postal code, my comings and goings. Be king of every layer and fiber of my being. <sighs> Let's pray. And I'm going to invite you to respond. Robert's going to lead us in a few songs, which are really musical prayers that enable us to move our hearts towards God in a response. But I'd like to pray, and then we'll just take a few sacred moments to invite you to respond. Father, we thank you that not only is Jesus unstoppable, he's amazing, he's fantastic. We thank you that he's just and true, he's gracious and faithful, he's fully dependable because he is the one faithful and true one. We thank you that he laid down his life for us willingly, spilled his blood for us so that we could be forgiven and propelled into your throne room and propelled into your heart and being able to cry, Abba, Father, and experience the power of spiritual adoption. And we thank you that he's not only healer and rescuer and friend of sinners, he's king. And Jesus, we pray uh, that you would exercise your good, loving, kind, just, holy rule over our lives. That your kingdom, your kingship would invade our lives in fresh measure. Pray, Holy Spirit, you would come. You would minister to us now in these moments. that you would give us the courage to respond to what Jesus would have us do. And better than that, give us a fresh infusion of his love, his life, his power. Tonight, I want to invite you to make a declaration where you say, yes, Jesus, king it over me. And in order to do that, where you sat, I'd invite you to sit no longer, but to stand. And in standing, say, Jesus, here am I. King over me. Break into my life in fresh measure. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. I give you my life fully and unreservedly. And so I invite you to stand. And when you're standing, I can pray for you. God bless you. Lord Jesus, we stand before you as brothers and sisters, as friends, as strangers, but we stand in the presence of the true and living God, the Holy God. And as we stand, we make a declaration that we want you to king it over our lives, that we want Monday morning to be a new kind of Monday morning, because tonight we give it all to you, Jesus. We respond to the biblical exhortation that says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. So King Jesus, good King Jesus, loving King Jesus, we want to be your obedient subjects. We want to run after your voice. 
We want to bring a smile to your face. We want to gladden your heart with the way we live our lives. So we pray that you would rule and reign over us. Have your way in us. Invade us afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit. Fill us to overflowing with the love of God. That we might be agents of your kingdom and for your glory. In your strong name. Amen. Let's all stand. And we're going to sing. Robert's going to lead us. And if you'd like to receive prayer for any issue, any heartache, any problem, physical healing, you want to connect with God in a deeper way, we would love to serve you, encourage you, and bless you by having the privilege of praying with you. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.